Now, that's what I see from your record. And you have the right to believe every one of these. You do. This is America. But I don't mean any disrespect. I don't know whether to call you professor or comrade. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 177 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. So we got we got good we got good old fashioned double header coming up right now. We're just gonna put put a flag in that right now. You know, this is gonna be part one, part two. Be on the Patreon episode, but we got uh, an excellent um, episode where where we're gonna be walking through one of our one of our new favorite thinkers. Uh, Salty Omarova, who's a, a an academic, a legal academic um, at the Cornell Law School, uh, does a lot of work on financial institutions, on banking law, international and corporate finance um, regulation thereof, and lately has been just putting out some absolutely fire shit on fintech. I mean, like just some of the best analyses of fintech that I've been seeing, uh, you know, and and. Big props to Ed for for putting this on uh, in front of me. I've I've never even you know heard of of Omarova before this. Never even come across these papers. Um, they were they were existing in an area of legal studies that I just don't normally dive into um, when I'm when I'm looking for literature and when I'm reading on this stuff. And oh, I feel, I feel like I hit a gold mine, or, or rather, I feel like Ed came to me with some jewels and said, hey, man, I, I, I thought you might like this, you know? So thank you, Ed. Thank you for introducing. You know, it's one of those feelings. The paper we're going to walk through today, it's called um, New Tech versus New Deal, uh, FinTech as a Systemic Phenomenon. And every once in a while, I read one of these papers where highlighting is just Yo, uh, a fool's errand because I'm 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 making whole pages yellow. Yeah, you know, like I I was trying to go back through the paper in preparation for this uh, episode, and I was like, oh, I I just have to read the whole paper again um, because my highlights are not helping me at all. <laughs> it's really, and I think that's a testament to the how uh, interesting. There's a lot of ideas at work here, right? There's um there's an attempt to try to offer a new history or optimum. To offer a history to people who might know, not know, or maybe interested in why the financial system we have looks the way it does. You know, what are some of the guardrails and the barriers that have been erected to ensure it isn't dysfunctional or what things are thought of as functional and dysfunctional? Uh, what the political economy of like regulation, right, of private control and operation of markets is. Um, and then what, you know, if you just think about it, what uh, creating a new technology uh, create that doesn't really come to us embedded in that tradition. You know what it might do to uh, unmoor or destabilize um, the previous consensus, which stretches back to the New Deal, as well as looking back at whether that consensus was stable or not, and if that's something we should return to, or if we need a new financial uh, settlement or deal. You know, as um, as we'll talk about to to take into account. Uh, fintech and other technological advancements that seem to or offer alternatives to the way the traditional ways of mediating financial disputes or regulating financial markets or exposing people to financial products or uh, giving people access to claims that they can trade on secondary markets right all of these things are key parts of the papers and its attempt the paper and its attempt to look at fintech and financial systems as systemic instead of Focusing on the micro individual transactional levels, while those are important too, right? Mm, yeah, and exactly. I mean, that's why that's one of the really big points uh, that that we will, you know, illuminate in our discussion of this paper. But that that big contribution there is the fact that, like, both so much of uh, regulation, so much analysis, so much technology and innovation really focuses on these like concrete transactional aspects 
of finance, right? And then, you know, it's regulation that's focusing on uh, making sure that these kind of concrete transactional, you know, you and I are exchanging money for goods and services kind of thing. Uh, you know, a lot of regulations focused on making sure that's, that's, you know, those transactions are done in a, a, a fair and not deceptive kind of way, right? A lot of innovation, as we'll get into, is focused on making these transactional aspects more efficient uh, and more frictionless. A lot of criticism and analysis even focuses on these concrete transactional aspects of finance because it's something that we can grasp onto. There's people there. There's, there's very clearly people doing things, right? Individual people doing individual things. And then we can kind of analyze that, pick it apart. Is this fair? Uh, how's it work? You know, that kind of stuff. But lost in the sauce of a lot of that is the way in which a lot of these concrete transactional aspects of finance are inherently uh, lead to complex systemic dynamics. Um, you know, it's the classic idea of there's, there's so much that we'll get into. <laughs> Ed and I were talking about this before. Uh, this is a, this is, this, this paper is a really, uh, a, a great example of a paper that is dense, but not because it's written in a in a hard to understand way, right? Dense in terms of uh, it's it's you know writing is bad or it's it's thinking is convoluted or jumbled. It's dense in the sense of uh, every single sentence is meaningful, right? And they all clearly hang together and they all clearly follow from each other. It's dense in the economy of its thought. Um, that is what this paper is like, you know, and that, that to me is the highest praise that I can levy on a paper is that, um, it is, it's dense in a way that feels not like it's overwhelming, um, but dense in a way that feels like, uh, a, a feast, a cornucopia of ideas, um, that all just kind of sing. They all hang together really well. But what that means is that there's a lot to think about. There's a lot to kind of, uh, walk through, but at no point did I ever feel lost. And I hope, you know, we translate that, that style in our discussion of the paper as we try to go through it as well. Um, but no point did I ever feel lost, even though, uh, you know, in this paper, Omarova is laying out a really great introduction section that's summarizing, you know, how fintech um, poses this kind of challenge to um, what she calls the New Deal settlement or this kind of, you know, system of, of regulation and a philosophy of financial regulation that originated, originated in the New Deal and uh, is still with us today, still very much is the, the kind of underlying philosophy of financial regulation today. And, and, and you know, then the, the kind of that's, you know, her second section of the paper is really laying out these logics of financial innovation. And, you know, in particular, though, what I like is that she does, she's not getting lost in, um, you know, the, the, the individual kind of, uh, uh, innovations or, or, or startups or anything like that. She's really trying to look at like, what is the logic of financial innovation? Not like what Silicon Valley is selling us, not what, you know, Web3 DeFi startups are trying to sell us. Yes, this stuff is important, but importantly, uh, a lot of what's happening is not a disruption. A lot of it's not even a transformation, as she'll get into it. It's a continuation, a direct continuation of logics and finance that have existed for decades and decades, right? Um, looking at those, you know, laying out clearly those logics and showing how over the, over that time, they have chipped away at, eroded this kind of New Deal regulatory uh, philosophy that's now, you know, nearly a hundred years old, right? Um, Going from there, really getting into the specifics of fintech then, right? Real, that's when she's, you know, after we've already got this kind of this, this broader sense of the argument of the analysis, then we can get into some more specifics and really ask that question is, is something like fintech, you know, with its bitcoins, with its distributed ledger, um, with, you know, robo advising, these specific aspects and applications of DeFi, uh, 
you know, in fintech, is it really a technological revolution? Is it really a market evolution in some sense, or is it some, or is it a uh, more, uh, more, the, more of the same in a lot of ways, but also more of the same in the sense of uh, continue, you know, contributing to that longstanding um, uh, practice or movement of chipping away at the ability of the the regulatory state and by extension the public to control and modulate uh finance and instead handing that over through these trans these these micro focused innovations lead to macro level handovers of power and control over capital allocation over financial innovation and this the the interest that it serves um really leading it to this being a systemic phenomenon as she lays out right um you know so there's a lot to get through in those in those three big sections that's why we're going to take two episodes to do this because this is really important stuff. I'm reminded of the last time we did one of these two episode uh, papers was when we was uh, or two episode yeah when we walked through a, a paper like this and took two episodes to do so was with the Hillary J. Allen paper. Yeah, yeah. You know um, uh, the paper on 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 shadow banking, right? And the kind of wall the shadow banks of Wall Street that led to the 2008 financial crash and the kind of uh, you know the 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 instru- this financial instrument instruments in the secondary markets that led to that crash and drawing a direct one to one analogy with the kind of financial innovations in the secondary markets now um, that define DeFi and fintech and through the same logics and practices lead into another crash i mean we already see it happening with crypto right where it is crashing hard the problem the, the the real question is how much of and to what extent of a spillover that will have in the into the real economy um and so that that hillary j allen paper was the last time i had i had this feeling of reading a paper that i was like man this is like a rosetta stone right this is this is laying out this is deciphering so much of what's going on right now and then to read this paper uh by omarova um that came out in the yale journal on regulation in 2019 so it's a few years old but it feels uh like it feels like years in the future in terms of its analysis um really feeling again like i've got this rosetta stone that is just deciphering uh what's happening in fintech the logics underpinning it and the logical conclusions that we are catapulting towards. little bit of background on Omarova is, you know, she's Cornell Law School professor. And I think, I mean, she's been an expert in the, in, in, in the field, uh, specifically on finance and banking regulations. But uh, most recently, you know, came into the spotlight because uh, Joe Biden nominated her to run um, Basically, as the comptroller, comptroller of the currency, which is uh, the one of, one of the major, if not major, banking regulator jobs, right? You know, the goal here, I think, initially was to have her come in and and and, and regulate the largest banks in the country and set top level regulations, but also try, um, as one of the nominations that he was pro- proposing after like a wave of others had failed, right? I think that he lost out. In the OCC, um, and it le- and it remained empty for a while. So they were hoping that you know she would be an actual pick. And it's still yeah. empty. There's only an acting comptroller right. right now, Michael Sue, who's been there for a while. But so there's not even yeah, there's not even an official nominee for that position. Mm-hmm. 
and and so and and that's a that's a huge problem. I mean, Omarova was pushed out of the position and withdrew her own nomination because uh, she was born in the Soviet Union. So uh, Republicans criticized her as a communist, um, and bank lobbyists as well said that she was a communist, saying that she wanted to uh, basically destroy the banking industry and replace it with the Federal Reserve. And they pointed to a few of her papers um, that talked about how the Fed could make its own digital currency, even though, you know, as comptroller, she wouldn't really have the ability to to actually get rid of the banking system and, or, 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 or regulate it out of existence. But nonetheless, the, the, the nonsense ended up winning out, right? A lot of Wall Street bankers, an editorial in the Wall Street Journal, you know, a lot of insinuation and in many cases outright saying that, well, you know, she was born in the Soviet Union, so can we really trust her? Uh, can we really trust her to have America's interest? Or do you think she'll, she's uh, a partisan of communism? Uh, now, when you uh, look and at she her, did, she did get her undergrad degree at Moscow State University. Yeah, I mean, you which, can't really trust. Honestly, that. <laughs> I would love to have a fucking uh, Letterman jacket from Moscow State <laughs> University. It's <laughs> 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 some real Red Dawn shit. Like, yeah, like the Red Dawn succeeded. The commies took over the U.S. Fast forward uh, to like the you know 1985, and we're living in the United States of communist America and and you 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 got like an all 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 American kid wearing his Moscow State University letterman jacket. <laughs> you know the mascot's the hammers, right? So like, I was on the vars I was on the Moscow State uh, Hammers varsity basketball team this year. So check out my letterman jacket. Oh my god, you should have seen the hearing, man. I remember this one motherfucker, I think it was um it was John Kennedy, the Louisiana senator. And he was like, I don't know where to call you, uh, professor or comrade. Well, yeah, you know, what, what the- <laughs> like, <come on. laughs> Some literal red scare shit. Like, like her nomination got tanked because of a literal like McCarthyism red scare by Republicans and then being honestly extremely racist too because she's like um kazakhstan she was born in kazakhstan and you know she's born in an asian part of russia as well which also people cannot wrap their mind around that you can be asian and russian um Uh like you know because russia spans through like you know, Eastern Europe, all the way over, all the way to Asia, right? To the other opposite coast. Um, And so there's just so much of this like extremely bizarre, both like anti-Russian, like xenophobic, like it was really weird shit to see someone who, as you know, a lot of the, uh, you know, uh, liberal newspapers or and, and media, liberal media was saying, you know, MSNBC, I saw in particular, was talking about how like Omarova was, you know, the most qualified nominee for mm-hmm. uh, office of comptroller of the currency ever put forward. The previous one nominated by Trump um, what had like a, a, a bachelor's degree in something unrelated, right? Whereas Omarova is a highly celebrated uh, top of the field uh, you know, scholar on exactly these issues. B- Biden's the reason y'all are paying like $20 for a gallon of milk right now. I understand. Yeah. You know, I saw that meme from Dr. Oz. <laughs> <laughs> oh, rapes. Rapes. Every American is paying. Yeah. <laughs> the wheat, yeah. Has, actually, is there inflation in wheat prices right now? <laughs> I, I know what I know what the, what the, the I I can report on this. I yeah, I actually I mean, have yeah. something to contribute to this episode because I did not read those papers. It hurt my brain. <laughs> Sorry, guys, but no worries. It hurt my brain. But yeah, I can I can report. Weed prices are being affected. The trick is, you just got to go to Portland and buy their surplus weed. That's a lot less expensive than it is in uh, in Washington State. Of course, Portland's got strategic surplus weed reserves. <laughs> of course. Yeah, it's called everybody and their brother grows their own plant, so they've got too much. <laughs> the weed growers are like, I just got too much surplus bee, but I can't send it back east, so might as well just sell it at like <laughs> cut cut market prices. 
Of course, you go in the you go in the to to Crazy Jay's Discount Weed Emporium, <laughs> getting that bud. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is also good because you know I was initially thinking I was like, okay, how can I illustrate the silliness of the criticism and the breadth of the ideas? So I think I'm just going to read for you, listener, um, the Wall Street Journal editorial board's article, which is short, sweet, and batshit. Right. <clears throat> President Biden checked off another progressive identity box last week by nominating Saul Omarova as comptroller of the currency. Some Trump appointees were ridiculed for having supported the elimination of their agencies. Miss Omarova wants to eliminate the banks she's being appointed to regulate. The Cornell University Law School professor's radical ideas might make even Bernie Sanders blush. She graduated from Moscow State Le- uh, University in 1989 on the Lenin Personal Academic Scholarship. Hmm? 30 years later, she still believes the Soviet economic system was superior and that U.S. banking should be rema- remade in the Goss Bank's image. Quote, until I came to the U.S., I couldn't believe that things like gender pay gaps still existed in today's world. Say what you will about the old USSR. There was no gender pay gap there. Market doesn't always know best, she tweeted in 2019. After Twitter users criticized her ignorance, she added a caveat, quote, I never claimed women and men were treated absolutely equally in every facet of Soviet life, but people's salaries were set uh, by the state in a gender-blind manner, and all women got very generous maternity benefits. Both things are still a pipe dream in our society. Sure, there was no, there was a gulag. And no private property, but maternity benefits. Ms. Omarova thinks asset prices, pay scales, capital, and credit should be dictated by the federal government. In two papers, she has advocated expanding the Federal Reserve's mandate to include price levels of systemically important financial assets, as well as worker wages. As they like to say at the modern university, from each according to her ability to each according to her needs. In a recent paper, The People's Ledger, she proposed that the Federal Reserve take over consumer bank deposits, effectively end banking as we know it, and become the ultimate public platform for generating, modulating, and allocating financial resources in a modern economy. She'd also like the U.S. to create a central bank digital currency, as Venezuela and China are doing, to redesign our financial system and turn Fed's to redesign our financial system and turn Fed's balance sheet into a true people's ledger, she tweeted this summer. What could possibly go wrong? Ms. Omarova believes capital and credit should be directed by an unaccountable bureaucracy of intelligentsia. She has recommended a national investment authority, which member with members overseen by an advisory board of academics to finance a big and bold climate agenda. Sounds like the green infrastructure bank the Senate rejected. She'd also like a politically and structurally independent public interest council of highly paid academics with broad subpoena power to supervise financial regulatory agencies, including the Fed. The council, she explained, would not be subject to the constraints and requirements of the administrative process. Ivy League professors know best. As comptroller, Ms. Omarova would supervise some 1,200 financial institutions. While she couldn't enact her people's agenda without legislation, she would have sweeping powers to punish banks that don't follow her dictates. Call how financial regulators during the Obama administration pressured banks to cut off credit to payday lenders. Ooh, that was dangerous. Our sources say the president nominated Ms. Omarova for, uh, over the objections of Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, to whom the comptroller reports. One theory for this bizarre nomination is that Mr. Biden is trying to appease progressives because he plans to reappoint Jeremy Powell as Fed chairman. Democratic senators have rubber-stamped all but a few of Mr. Biden's nominees, but Miss Miss Overova, sorry, but Miss Overova, Democratic senators have rubber-stamped all but a few of Mr. Biden's nominees, but Miss Omarova is the wrong nominee for the wrong industry in the wrong country in the wrong century. This is a perfect example of <laughs> uh, of what I see a lot happening is that when people don't actually have an argument they just yeah. write something with a shitty tone in their voice and yeah. try to like <laughs> yeah like they just hot a bag of shit just a massive bag of shit yeah like they just put some stank on it they got a shitty tone in their voice you know and then they 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 try to let that stand in for actual argument because literally everything that you were just reading out was a laundry list of things i'm like this is what they took from us 
<laughs> Look at what they did to my sweet boy. We we could have had so much better. You know, this is uh I mean now now I mean there's no better introduction as to why uh uh TMK is getting Omarova pilled than that editorial from the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, th- this is what we're talking about here. Her her ideas are incisive. Uh her uh her recommendations are progressive. She's got big ideas, uh, not only for how to best analyze and understand the financial system, but how to change it. Right? It's great. Yeah, you know, and, and we should also be really clear: Omarova herself is not, you know, she's not the 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 dyed, you know, red the 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 uh, you know red diaper red baby. baby. Yeah, she's not the red diaper baby that uh, the Republicans painted her as, um, you know, in the hearings uh, for her nomination, you know, in response to the, the all, you know, well, well, now you see here, I'm, I'm just a, I'm just a small country lawyer, but uh, I, don't, I don't know whether to call you professor or comrade. You know? like, in response to that, she lays out that like, you know, no, like, you know, she, uh, you know, her family suffered under the communist regime. They escaped, you know, the Soviet uh, Union to America. Um, you know, she lays out all these things about how, you know, you know, she is what, however much she played it up for the nomination. I don't know, but, you know, laying out that, no, I'm a, I'm proud to be an American. I'm a patriot. I'm anti-communist, you know, but it really did feel like a, uh, a, a house, um, an American committee, uh, hearing right in the in the mm-hmm. you know she didn't come out there swinging like Paul Robinson uh, you know in that famous hearing um, <laughs> if we can have Jeremy use that as the outro or something for this uh, episode but you know so so we're we're not we don't have blinders over our eyes we're, we don't have uh, you know uh, red colored glasses on as we read this you know thinking that Omarova is like us uh, you know, a radical communist. Um, but what we do see here is really clear analysis of the problem, really clear understanding of its mechanics, of its implications, um, uh, of its, you know, all of that. And, and as we'll get into, because I think this is, pro- this is going to be the first of, of, of many, um, uh, discussions of Omarova's work that we go through. I mean, you know, that Wall Street Journal editorial mentioned her paper on the People's Ledger, um, which we we will at some point, not immediately, we'll, 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 we'll give, you know, you dear readers um, some time to digest and stuff. But at some point, we will also go through that paper um, and go through some of her other work. Because while this paper that we're going through today is very much a kind of um, setting things up. It's, it's, it's a, it's analytical. It's like, let's understand, um, how this, you know, these phenomenon work, how fintech is relating to the kind of established regulatory regime, um, all of that. She does have other work like that paper on the people's ledger, which is much more normative, uh, uh proposals, right? This is what should, you know, here's how it should work differently. Um, and I think a lot of that is really generative. It's really interesting. And it's, it, it's the kind of programmatic thinking, systemic analysis and programmatic thinking. That's what we need more of, uh, in, 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 in the world right now. Um, you know, that's what we need more of in this space. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think is really instructive about Hillary J. Allen's paper and work and Salty Omarova's paper and work um, is the way that they approach technology is not as a technology first approach. They are approaching it as understanding the financial system in its context and in its history, and then under and then looking at how new technologies are plugging into that, or at, you know, as phenomenon within that system, and not taking the mistake that I think a lot of analysis and a lot of regulation and and so on uh, of technology takes, which is to act as if these things are new, um, to act as if these things exist as 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 objects in and of themselves in a vacuum and a void, um, rather than as direct outcomes of long-standing, already existing imperatives, interests, systems, and so on. Um, and I think 
we can really see, at least to me, I can see a really clear difference in terms of the quality of, of analysis and the importance of the contribution of conclusions when somebody takes the when somebody takes that you know approach that Alan and o, and Omarova do in their work versus when somebody comes into this blind thinking they don't need to know how the financial institute sector works, for example, they don't need to look. At, at its history, even just, you know, immediate history, right? The last crisis. Um, yeah, I know it was, you know, 14 years ago, but we, we you know, we can't forget uh, and act as if fintech is something new that came out of nowhere. As this paper lays out, um, you know, a lot of the underlying uh, shifts in the financial system, not, namely towards the uh, secondary financial markets, which is, you know, where, where things like derivatives and securities live, these kinds of instruments that are essentially, um, you know, uh, financial innovations for financial actions, right? Um, you know, it's, it's meta, right? It's finance for finance. That's the secondary financial markets that, you know, a lot of those innovations, really kicked off in like the 80s with the global expansion of derivatives um, of secu you know, and securitization and these kinds of things. You know, this, this shift towards a financialization of the economy um, and of society and of the world and everything, um, you know, that, that is the context that we have to understand the rise of something like fintech, um, where if it weren't, if, if it wasn't for all of that, we wouldn't have what we have right now. We, we can't act as if we can't believe the, the bullshit when the innovators and the disruptors and people come and, and proclaim that they are innovators and disruptors. Uh, you know, uh, that, that they are, um, they, they may not be aware of the system that they're plugging into. I think that is probably more often the case is that they're not lying. They're just, uh, they're just ignorant. They're just unaware, but we have to be aware of that. So with all that said, um, uh, all that context laid out. Let's actually get into the paper. See, we're already thirty, like thirty minutes in. This is why we needed this to be two episodes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'll walk us through, I guess, a sort of like orienting for the intro and the paper and its contents. Right. I mean, the the thrust of the article is centered around, you know, as we talked about, there are three core arguments that are going on here. Right. The first is trying to explain what the New Deal settlement in finance is, right? This is the idea that they talk about where around 1929, uh, in response to the New Deal, there's a new set of ideas, political and philosophical, around how finance should be managed. Um, and these largely pursue for the next century, right? They're supposed to allow, it's, an, it's basically a boundary between, you know, what private actors who are seeking profits are allowed to retain control of, which is the allocation of capital, uh, the generation of financial risk, and what the public is supposed to be responsible for, which is main, mainly, you know, financial instability at the systemic level. Uh, it then tries to argue, you know, or it tries to present a new, you know, framework for understanding the dynamics that have undermined this settlement over the past few decades. It talks about the, you know, some of these key mechanisms that we'll go over in the paper are the development of abilities for these private actors that, you know, are still given control over much of financial system uh, to constantly synthesize, create, generate uh, new financial assets that can be traded to scale up the activity that allows for the, the trading activity and the volume of the trades and also undermine and erode the public's ability to regulate and the public in the sense being, you know, government regulators, um, government bureaucracies, uh, undermining the public's ability to mitigate and manage the systemic ride risk that emerge from the constant development and expansion of new tradable financial assets. And then going into why uh, new fintech applications, crypto, distributed ledgers, you know, the, the crowdfunding, why these tap into those destabilizing effects, make them worse, accelerate the erosion private actors have had in their war on the public-private settlement, 
um, and, and, and basically disrupt the ability of financial markets to be stable or to stabilize themselves or to have a clear and transparent accounting of the risk, right? And why fintech is a systemically important, existentially even important public policy um, problem to solve for the financial system because it invites a huge number of risks that can destabilize the whole system. And so from here, we need to clarify what we're talking about when we're thinking of fintech, right? You know, fintech, generally speaking, they write, refers to, you know, innovative technologies, quote, innovative technology enabled financial services, right? You know, these are things that are mediating and affecting how transactions occur, how services are provided, right? Crypto is an easy example here because cryptocurrencies and their adoption um, allow for digital assets to be issued by corporations instead of, or DAOs instead of securities, right? And then you can also have robots and algorithms um, provide uh, advice, financial advice on financial transactions, on savings, on wealth and retirement planning. So these are some of the more obvious effects of fintech. But there are also more subtle ones, namely that fintech is shifting how people understand and th- you know think and understand finance. The framework of understanding finance has shifted from, quote, seemingly objective science-driven terms Fintech is deploying digital, computational technologies and methods of analysis um, that rely on huge numbers, huge data sets, right? High volumes, high speeds uh, that confer the, you know, the idea of neutrality and objectivity, which is a part, an explicit part of the messaging as well, right? And there's also the fact that complexity gets flattened. We end up focusing on the transactions themselves instead of the structures and the dynamics underlying them. And so this means that instead of thinking about systemic risk um, and instead of thinking about problems and solutions right, uh, to those systemic risks, uh, we're thinking instead in terms of the transactions, how to make them easier, how to remove the friction around them. You know, moreover, writes it deals with clearly functionally defined, programmable, and thus controllable business processes and tools, rather than difficult normative judgments and policy trade-offs. And so, as a result, what we're seeing emerges in this in the in this fintech, in fintech's narrative, right? What we're seeing is uh, a revolution. Is the promise, right? The project here is to reconstruct finance into a new thing that's built on, quote, mutuality, mutuality, cooperation, and inclusiveness. And Momorova goes on to write, in that sense, its implicit promise is to redefine not only how we transact with one another, but also how we, but also who we are as a community. New technology will succeed where old politics has failed. When you hear this narrative, you know, there are a few questions that emerge about fintech and about whether it's, you know, this this understanding of fintech is actually true. Does it have the potential to usher in a social revolution? Um, what's the nature of the proposed reconstruction of financial markets? What would the implication be of that reconstruction? Uh, can technology be used to and deployed in ways that plug gaps in our political order? And these are all very interesting questions. But another one. Another way of thinking of all of this, right, is, is trying to think of what a concrete conceptual accounting of fintech and its systemic dynamics would be, as opposed to focusing on the logic of these micro transactional things, right? If we do think fintech is all these wonderful things as that narrative has does, we should note that that narrative is doing so on an individual level, on a superficial level. So, so we should analyze it at a larger macro object level and think about whether the narrative holds up when you apply that sort of sort of uh, critical lens, right? And so, the, you know, the, the the thrust of this article is trying to say, like, you know, when you when you critically engage with fintech, you need to be looking at its impact on financial markets. You need to be looking at the regulatory issues, right? You need to be as the article posits, thinking about the, the role of technology in finance and that it cannot be properly assessed or even understood without explicitly addressing the underlying questions about the role of today's finance and the broader socioeconomic system. Because finance occupies micro and macro levels, so fintech analysis needs to be concerned with both 
and think about finance as technology as well as finance as public policy, right? Transactions and structures, public involvement and concerns. And, you know, Omarova goes on to write here, the article argues that from this systemic perspective, the fintech phenomenon has a broader significance than a disruption in the prevailing modes of or institutional challenge channels for delivery of specific financial services. Its arrival marks a potentially decisive shift in the fundamental political arrangement underlying the operation of the modern financial system as it currently exists in most advanced markets. Which then brings us then to, in the introduction, her laying out this New Deal settlement of finance, right? And here she's really just speaking about, quote, certain politically derived judgments about the optimal balance of private freedom and public control in the financial market. The settlement was such that private markets were still able to control key and core decisions about how capital allocation would proceed. And as a result, they had power over the structure and the volume of financial claims in the system. While on the public side, we saw that, you know, as, as outlined earlier, responsibility for stability of the financial system, for the operation smooth and efficient of the markets laid with the public. Government regulation was supposed to come in and mitigate moral hazards. It was supposed to limit the ability of market actors to, quote, create excessive systemic system-wide risk in pursuit of private profits. But that at the end of the day, this is an inherently unstable and contestable project, right? Constantly renegotiated and readjusted because private actors were still allowed, they were still allowed control over capital allocation, right? They were still able to translate the power that they wielded over capital allocation, generation of tradable financial assets, um, and over uh, the volume and structure of financial claims in the system and translate that into political power to more economic power and undermine the New Deal settlement on finance that was supposed to create an equilibrium that would mit- minimize risk such a, and that could lead to a, you know economic collapse. And you know again, this is because private actors they, they were able to translate that you know their their power into power in other domains and, and because they're self-interested enough that they're going to seek to expand their freedom to create new avenues of profit-seeking behavior uh, that would be legal now, right? You know, in an attempt to kind of illustrate and shed lights on the dynamics that drive the renegotiated, the renegotiation and readjustment, the article focuses on those secondary markets that Jason was talking about, where the claims uh, that raise capital are traded, right? The secondary markets, they're larger, they're more complex, and they're also more systemically integral, right? This is where innovation and systemic risk um, happens. Or is generated in its largest degree. You know, we've talked about this a bit in our shadow banking episode and the, the creation of financial instruments that allow you to get around certain regulations, that allow you to make leveraged bets, that allow you to trade on assets without exposure. You know, these are very valuable tools if you are a private actor seeking more avenues for creating profit. And that's what we're talking about when we say innovation. Because innovation, again, you know, as we talk about in our agitprop against it, is not inherently a good thing. That just mainly refers to a new way of doing something. And in financial system, it usually refers to a new way of, you know, contesting uh, this new deal settlement. I, I want to jump in real quick just to underline, because I think there's a really key point here between, you know, primary versus secondary financial markets, uh, where, you know, a, a lot of our, a lot of the underlying arguments for the kind of New Deal settlement and financial regulation, which is largely about, again, this kind of, you know, the public's role is to maintain um, the stability of the system, uh, to be this kind of backstop, uh, you know, a, a, a lender of last resort for the system, you know, usually things for like, you know, FDIC, right? Federal, uh, federal deposit insurance um, to ensure things like bank runs don't happen or if they do happen that people aren't going to, um, you know, banks will be able to pay back people's deposits through, you know, the government kind of acting as an insurance for that, right? A lot of that is based around the stability of primary financial markets, right? Things where, you know, people putting their money in the bank for saving, um, the bank lending 
money for for businesses and for other entrepreneurial activities or to buy big assets like cars and houses that contribute to the growth of the economy and to the American dream, you know, these kinds of things, right? In other words, it's about like, you know, the safe and secure um, uh, storage and distribution of capital, that's the primary market. And that's what, that's what you know, the, the New Deal settlement and the, the kind of broader co- uh, conception in the public of what the role of finance is largely is, you know, things that happen in these primary financial markets. And as you were just laying out, Ed, and, and I just really want to emphasize this because it's super key um, to, to Omarova's overarching story, but also as to like w- how we got to where we are now with the with the way finance and fintech and all that operates is that the secondary market, which is the realm of, you know, financial assets, right? The kind of derivatives and securitization, you know, these kind of financial instruments that we now conceive of as like, you know, the actual, you know, we think of this now as in terms of like, you know, Wolf of Wall Street type of shit, right? Like this is 80s um, vulture capitalism, Gordon Gecko, you know, this is billions, right? If you watch billions, right? Like all of that kind of the machinations of Wall Street and hedge funds and private equity firms, right? Like, you know, the, the kind of dark underbelly of finance, um, that is now the, that has now shifted towards being the main purpose of finance. Um, these secondary markets have vastly grown in size. They dwarf the primary markets, which also now calls into question an argument for the, the one of the main arguments for this hands-off approach to financial regulation and the, and the, the underlying philosophy of the New Deal settlement is that private markets should be the uh, people making decisions about capital allocation. That's what a market is, right? And if, if the state is making decisions about capital allocation, rather than merely um, stabilizing that private system, then that's socialism, that's communism. That's not what we are about in the, 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 the capitalist system. But again, this only makes sense if the, the financial system is acting primarily in terms of capital allocation towards socially beneficial uses. That's not the case anymore. Even if we think about where a lot of, you know, in the tech sector, where a lot of decisions about capital allocation happen, it's now venture capitalists. And they are making those allocation decisions based on their own interest, their own models, their own forecast and, and requirements for return on investment, right? Um, and so uh, suddenly, you know, the, the financial system has been, well, not suddenly, it's happened over time. Um, the financial system has become dominated by these secondary markets. And even in the regards to the primary markets, it's questionable uh, as to what degree um, that kind of those kind of capital allocation decisions are actually being made uh, in socially useful or socially beneficial ways. And, and this is where a lot of what we conceive of as financial innovation, as well as, as Ed was laying out, the overgeneration of risk happens in the secondary markets, right? Uh, financial innovation is tends to be innovation for finance to do more finance. That's what that innovation tends to boil down to. So I just really wanted to underlie this point because I think it's it, it's a it's a key argument used to ward away more proactive uh, and, and and close regulation of the financial system um, and. But it's it's a key argument that is now based on a reality that does not exist. No, I think that's perfect. I think that's a really good contribution to add to this. And I think that also helps when we're trying to then, you know, think about, okay, so what was the New Deal settlement? You know, we talked about what it was trying to do. How, why was it being eroded? What sort of innovation was trying to be defended here? Um developed push that helped make it even more unstable than it already was, right? You know, and so this, you know, then gets us to ask, okay, you know, what are the ways that private actors used secondary markets to undermine the the, the boundaries established by this um, by the New Deal settlement? There are two major ways that financial markets have grown here. 
um, and been created. One is in constantly synthesizing those tradable financial assets that we talked about. Um, and, and processes that we'll talk a bit about later. And then two is in, again, scaling up the volume and the velocity of the trading activity. With these, with these two mechanisms in mind, you know, things you can do, you can pull claims, you can layer them, you can compress and accelerate the rate at which they're traded. You can ensure that there are multiple drivers of growth feeding into the creation and acceleration and expansion of these secondary markets. And again, you know these drivers, and not only you know they create a they create a sort of cycle where you know the the growth fed into it it's constant, it's complex, but it also makes it much harder to mitigate moral hazards and systemic risk, right? Because government regulation here isn't really always able to match the developments, while the private interests are hardly ever aligned with self-regulation and as Jathan pointed out more with figuring out new ways more exciting ways to generate profits even if they put the whole system at risk you know moreover rights in fact private actors very success in synthesizing financial assets and scaling up trading activities often depends on the lack of or inefficacy of regulatory controls derivatives digital assets are some of the major examples that emerge along with many, many, many others of new assets being generated, traded, and, ex- and their markets grown. So the article here insists that you know there's been a gradual but insistent erosion of the New Deal settlement, and that it, pos- it posits, quote, that deciphering the meaning of the fintech revolution as a macro-financial systemic phenomenon requires a deeper understanding of how specific fintech applications impact the public's capacity to maintain the stability of the macro-environment. Fintech may present a unique opportunity to correct the increasingly problematic imbalance between private misallocation of credit and the public's ability to modulate credit aggregates, or it may further intensify that imbalance. And the balance already, as it is, is skewed towards more established fintech apps that expand private actor freedom to generate and overgenerate financial risk. Uh, one of the co- observations that Omarova makes here is that recent advances in computing power, cryptography, data analytics, and machine learning appear poised to amplify the long-lasting, systemically destabilizing trends in the financial markets, and that these tools, like the constant synthesizing of crypto assets that are not really connected to real production in the real economy, but are still tradable in, quote, potentially infinitely scalable virtual markets, is a prime example here. And that going on from that, the transactional focus of fintech might remove friction, such as in those um, crypto uh, crypto asset markets and market boundaries, but it amplifies speculation and, and, and as a result, it risks macro level um, collapses and calamities because it can, quote, exaggerate the financial system's dysfunctional tendency towards unsustainably self-referential growth. And that this ends up bringing us to the crux, right? That the news deal settlement and finance it was unstable, it was constantly renegotiated and adjusted, that FinTech is ascending and disrupting it further because it renders useless a wall between um, credit generation and allocation and credit modulation and accommodation, right? Between private rights to manage uh, claims and capital allocation and public responsibility to regulate. And that this is even worse because of how much of a focus there has been on removing friction and creating, but still growing and synthesizing new assets. So as an example, crypto, right? Crypto speculation growing even further and faster and penetrating more of the economy precisely because there is little of, there's little left of that settlement, right? That establishes a boundary between the ability to, um, you know, privately allocate, but also circumvent um, the public's ability to regulate. So we need a new public-private boundary, it seems. And so Omarova goes on here to kind of outlay uh, the rest of the argument. I'll quote this as the close for the intro. Um, the article's organized as follows. Part one provides a brief overview of uh, recent fintech developments and places them in the context of what I call the New Deal Settlement in Finance. It outlines the defining features of this political settlement and traces the processes of its gradual erosion in recent decades, delving deeper into this process. Uh, Part two advances the novel conceptual framework 
uh, for understanding the fundamental dynamics of secondary markets and financial instruments, and it offers a preliminary taxonomy of the principal mechanisms or system-level transaction meta-technologies that enable private market actors to engage in continuous synthesizing of financial assets, of tradable assets, and scaling up of trading activities. And finally, part three examines specific fintech applications from the perspective of the potential to amplify the operation of these core financial market mechanisms. And then draws out, as a result, some of these key systemic implications from the new technologies while focusing on why fintech is not so much the profit of democratization that a lot of its advocates insist, but in fact, a public policy challenge that we need to pay as much attention to as possible. I just laid out basically the next episode in a lot of ways. <laughs> we had a lot of context to get through, and you know, Ed just walked us through very aptly the the introduction, which you know, the introduction of this of this um, of this paper really is the paper in short. You know, a lot of the kind of the the big arguments and 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 conclusions that Omarova is trying to sketch out here and draw out, um, you know, is in the introduction, and then we're putting, you know, it's the bones, right? And we're putting meat on those bones um, throughout the paper. Or rather, Omarova is as we discuss through her uh, her argument, right? That's where we start really fleshing stuff out. Um, I think one of the other key points I wanted to draw out before we kind of wrap up here, right? And, and we'll, we'll keep heading into the premium episode, um, as, as we go through this paper, uh, which again, you know, if, if, if something like fintech, finance, the tech sector, you know, any of that is of interest to you, then this paper has to be of interest to you as well. Whether it's our analysis of it or you sitting down and going through it yourself, it has to be of interest to you um, because this is real. This is crucial, right? This is key. Um, this is where the rubber is really hitting the road uh, in terms of how the 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 really sudden and rapid spread uh, of of fintech and it's you know yes a lot of it is very much the kind of defi stuff that we've talked about you know uh at length the web3 defi crypto kind of bullshit that is now you know uh has has aims of taking over everything um you know yeah that is that is definitely a huge part of this i mean but it's not all right it all fit you know all fintech is not all crypto or defi there's a lot of other aspects too i mean it's down to things like Robinhood, right? You know these or or other similar kinds of uh, uh, of stock trading apps that really exist uh, to materialize the exact logics that Omarova is laying out here in terms of like making this more frictionless, uh, more convenient, so that you can have more transactions, faster transactions, easier transactions. It's that same logic of just speeding it up, amplifying it, making, you know, making more derivatives of derivatives, making it easier for people to, to uh, act like day traders. These innovations, again, that are focused on seemingly micro level transactional uh, interactions do not stay at that level. They have massive systemic dynamic effects. Um, and, and so, you know, yeah, it, it is the fact that, you know, crypto assets are, as Omarova lays out, effectively untethered from and thus unconstrained by any productive activity in the real economy. We'll get into that deeper in the next, what that actually means. That's that kind of cleavage between the fictitious economy of uh, of speculative assets and betting uh, between the real economy where actual uh, real you know, material assets and production happens. Um, this is not, you know, crypto is taking advantage of that and, and you know, creating and synthesizing, you know, these, these crypto assets um, that are therefore tradable in uh, a s effectively infinitely scalable virtual markets. 
this is the logic of startups, right? It needs to be infinite scale, continuous growth. Um, and so as we'll lay out, that dynamic in crypto is not one that crypto created. I mean, we have to sketch that all the way back to the 80s with the, um, with the actual rise of derivatives and securitization and we'll get into you know exactly what that means right uh you know the the creation of financial instruments that derive their value from some underlying asset um usually with fluctuating prices right that's what the derivatives securitization right the bundling and pooling of uh revenue generating assets you know mortgage loans uh you know interest on 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 credit and things like that as we start seeing now uh, with the rise of, you know, the, the global corporate landlords like Blackstone and stuff, you know, now we start seeing uh, uh, the securitization of rental uh, income on, on single family rental homes, right? Like, but these are not new and the fintech, you know, innovations being built on top of them, crypto, Robinhood, you know, this kind of stuff uh, is a direct continuation of logics um, trace and, and innovations tracing back to the 80s. And we know from history that these kinds of things have massive systemic, generate massive systemic risk, create massive systemic problems, which then require massive systemic solutions um, where somebody ends up taking a haircut and mysteriously, it's almost never the people generating these risks and these innovations that have to do it, right? It's a coincidence. Yeah, weird coincidence that we constantly see a, a privatization of returns and a socialization of risk, right? And why is that the fact? It's because I think uh, a big part of that is our, 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 our wrong understanding that that uh, creates these two separate realms of microeconomics and macroeconomics that's even how it's taught you know tracing it back to the chicago school uh you know tracing it back to the austrian school so we you know hayek von mises you know milton friedman you know these guys right a lot of the a lot you know up to the, you know, where we are now in terms of, uh, you know, neoclassical economics, a lot of this is focused on microeconomics, right? They want to just keep you at that small level of, of individual market actors engaging in transactions. That's all the economy is, you know, but that's not right. That's not right at all. It's not true. Those individual transactional levels uh, the the consequences reverberate on at a systemic uh, level of uh, a phenomenon and consequence. Um, this is what leads to uh, crashes. This is what leads to socializing of risk and the privatization of returns. Right. This is what leads to a lot of these problems that we have in the financial sector, um, and we see fintech taking advantage of that again. Who cares if uh, if you know individual people decide that they want to trade crypto, right? Like, well, as long as they know all the risk, then you know it's it's on them to do that. Who cares if people want to go on Robinhood and and become day traders on their lunch hour? You know, like who cares? Yeah, as long as they know the risk. But you know, each of these things. Uh, the the gestalt of them, the sum of their parts is much greater than the individual components, right? Like, yeah, it doesn't matter if I'm creating of uh, 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 and synthesizing crypto assets that are untethered from the real economy and tradable uh, at infinite scale in virtual markets. It doesn't matter if I'm doing that, but sure as hell matters when we all start doing that. Right. That's when it suddenly becomes a problem. And that's that's the realm that we are in right now. Um, and so we will get into a lot more of this. We'll get into the, you know, like I said, this is the bones. We're going to get into the we're going to put some meat on them bones in the premium episode on the Patreon feed. If this intrigued you at all. Follow us on over there as we dig deeper into this paper, as we walk through it at patreon.com slash this machine kills, uh, where we are, you know, we got a whole backlog of premium episodes. We're putting out new ones every single week. So join us over there. Uh, $5 a month gets you access to all that. Um, uh, so we're, we're going to roll into that right now and we'll either catch you there 
or we'll catch you on the free feed next week. Until then, later. Adios. Adios.